This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join me. My guest today is author Richard Zacks. Richard is a journalist, a former syndicated newspaper columnist, as well as the author of numerous pieces for The Atlantic, Sports Illustrated, and the like. He's the best-selling author of books ranging across the breadth of his interests, including sex, vice in the time of Teddy Roosevelt, pirates, and a particular time in the life of Mark Twain, and more. Please meet my friend, Richard Zacks. Hey, Richard. Hi, Marian. How are you today? Just fine. Good. Well, we've known each other a long time, and you've always been one of my favorite reads. I particularly remember when the New York Times, commenting on your first book, History Laid Bare, wrote that you, quote, specialize in the raunchy and perverse. And I laughed like hell. And in these interviews, I always try to ask writers about their areas of expertise. And for my money, your area of expertise is knowing how to be you while writing. So if the raunchy and perverse lights you up, making you the single writer with whom I want to have this conversation, let's talk about that. How do you say yes to being yourself in your work? Well, I, I loved that comment from the Times. I was absolutely thrilled. You know, I think they meant it a little snarky, <laughs> and I took it as the ultimate compliment. Um, I, I, had a, I went to an all-boys school growing up. Um, I had an excessive interest in sex, and um, my first book, I was also a little scared to write historical narrative in the beginning. I was hugely scared. I was terrified. So I kind of dipped my toe in the water of writing books by doing a sex anthology. And I can't think of a better way of doing it. It was fun. <laughs> I had to write The oh, Bridges. Yeah, that so was you... a challenge, but that was about the only writing I had to do. So you took on all of sex as opposed to just taking one titillating piece of it. That makes, well, we that found, makes sense. We found a lot of, I mean, I found a lot of, you know, unusual, you know, the rules in a monastery when sleeping three to a bed always have the old man sleep in the middle, you know, um, <laughs> or um, how many, how many penance, uh, you know, you have to, how much penance you have to do if you accidentally sleep with your sister-in-law in the dark. I mean, these are authentic things. Burkhardt of Worms, you know, these are, these are, I didn't make anything up in that book. Well, we should say that the, the full title is History Laid Bare, Love, Sex, and Perversity from the Ancient Etruscans to Warren G. Harding. So it was rather a sweeping sense of what we were going to get. It, it begs the question of why we stopped at Warren G. Harding, but, you know, we'll get there. We'll I've get always there. been afraid of the uh, most recent, to be honest with you. I, I still haven't made it past <laughs> 1950. I mean, I, I envy your memoir ability because I'm so tempted to do that, and I never let myself touch the present, you know. Oh, now that's interesting. So it wouldn't seem with the books that you've written that you're afraid of anything. But what you're saying is that recent stuff just doesn't light you up? It's not that it doesn't light me up. I think I'm going to be totally candid here. People can say you're wrong. You've made a mistake because it's from their own life. If you're describing, you know, a Martin Luther King march and you get it wrong, there were people who are there who can correct you. 
But uh, writing more about, to be totally honest, writing more about Captain Kidd, there are no survivors. You know, I'm pretty, pretty safe there. <laughs> and I think that was a little part of my method, really. Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's talk about this whole idea of your books reflecting who you are a little bit more, because I think of the young writer listening to this who's trying to be honest, who's trying to feel his way to giving himself the kind of permission you gave yourself to be on the page. And you just said, okay, so I can't really deal with the recent history. I don't want to have that reverb from people saying, that's not the way it happened. You know, Christmas 1975 was the worst day of my life, and you say it's the best day of yours. So you don't want to deal with that. But what advice would you give to a young writer who says, I, you know, I'm a little bit quirky, I'm a little bit odd, or I love the perverse, or I really like vice, but how do I inhabit that in my work? Well, all I can tell you is I, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I, this is what interested me. And to do a book, I mean, I'm sure your other guests have said it's a long process and you have to care, you have to be excited. And um, to be honest, the, the tracking down obscure sex, I mean, I found some very strange things was... <laughs> Just so, you know, Hittite <laughs> phalluses and I mean, just, but all authentic. It was just a lot of fun and, and it worked for me. But on the other hand, I would say my whole career has been an arc from that point forward. The next book was um, not, a, not a glorified anthology. It was a bunch of thousand word takes, which having mm -hmm. been a columnist for a while, I felt comfortable in, in thousand word, 1500 word. And I still was scared of doing narrative and I still wanted to astound people with you know, unusual and provocative and subversive. So I, I, I look back and I, I love what, you know, your theme of, of the talk is just, I, I have been moving forward along uh, sort of a continuum of my personality, definitely. <laughs> well, let's take a bigger breath in then. I know that you attended some of America's most elite schools, including the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. Before that, the University of Michigan, you majored in classical Greek and studied Arabic, Italian, French. So give me the scene so the young writer can feel it of your telling your parents, for instance, who were alive when you published your first book, telling the people in your life that what you're going to publish is love, sex, and perversity from the ancient Etruscans to Warren G. Harding. Well, How do you break it to the people who love you? <laughs> it was pretty wild, actually, <laughs> because I there I was. I had a column in the New York Daily News, which then was, I think, the largest circulation paper in America. I wrote about entertainment, mm -hmm. which is something I definitely didn't want to keep doing for the rest of my life. And I squeezed out the time to, to write this book and I come home, I'm pretty proud and you know, the book's not out yet, but I have to tell them about it. And I, I tell my mother and she has a completely blank look on her face. And then she says, how did the Jews come off? And I go, the Jews? <laughs> well, I guess, let me think, they're persecuted. Um, yeah, there's persecution during the Renaissance against the Jews and I have that. There was a sexual crime committed. She goes, persecuted, fine, okay. And that was literally, I think, the only feedback. And my dad said, how many copies did it sell? Which, you know, it did. Oh. I think it sold like 40,000 or something, which I was thrilled about. But he had no frame of reference to that. So that was about it. So your parents took it nicely and you moved on. And History Laid Bare was followed by an underground education, the unauthorized and outrageous supplement to everything you thought you knew about art, sex, business, crime, science, medicine, and other fields. So you started out to write these books with this interest of yours, but did you ever understand from the beginning the giant sweep you were going to have to take that, and the research that would be involved to get there? It's actually, that also is kind of ridiculous. So of course not, I was an idiot, I was younger. Um, but <laughs> um, on the other hand, um, the, the, 
I was pitching some book ideas, and this editor, Bill Thomas, um, said, let's meet at O'Flaherty's Bar, which was near Times Square back in the day. And it had a pool table, and Bill was going to clean my clock and pool because he's much better than me. And he literally slapped a Post-it down on the bar that said, actually, at that point, it said, underground history, everything you're not, everything you don't know. You know, because there was that book oh. about sex, everything you don't know about. So he yes. wanted me to do it for history as a kind of, because he knew I'd studied Greek and Italian and, you know, had a Horace Mann, you know, education and all the rest of it. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but no, I had no clue. I was so excited that a, a legitimate editor was actually pitching a book to me. I, I mean, thank God he said that and not something else. I'm sure I would have said yes to him, pretty much anything. And it was so unbelievably hard. It was probably... I don't know. No, everything's hard. I mean, you've probably been, your other guests have mentioned it. Writing is hard. But to research and kind of stump the experts in most major areas of human knowledge, I, I mean, it was it was ridiculous. I just went to the library. I'd pick up every, you know, Catherine the Great book, look in the footnotes, try to get back to primary source. Napoleon erotica, try to get back to primary source. Um, Edison's electric chair, try to get to primary source. Um, just... Uh, but I, I love doing it. And, and it also, I, it was in my, you know, to speak to the young writer, it was in my comfort zone of 1,000 to 1,500 word pieces that I was, I felt I could handle. I wasn't ready for a big, long narrative sweep yet. I, I hadn't reached that point. So, But you seem to be comfortable with the big narrative sweep as you move through your career, leading you in the next natural place to go as in this sort of continuum of vice and sex to, well... Pirates. And (laughs) of course, your book, Pirate Hunters. Yeah. I mean, wait for it. Pirates. (laughs) And your book, Pirate Hunters, sold more than 175,000 copies. And Time Magazine chose it among the best five nonfiction books of its year. I remember the pirate flag flying at your house, some pirate-themed Halloween costumes. You've ultimately written two books on pirates and contributed to films on the topic. I think it would be pretty easy to stay in that brand forever. How do you break the spell on something like that? I mean, how do you say, that's all the pirates I'm doing, thank you? Well, it it was strange stumbling on that story. First, I just want to slide back a little. I mean, again, I Mm -hmm. didn't realize uh, Pirates of the Caribbean hadn't come out yet. So pirates weren't quite tarred with the silliness that they're that they have now. There wasn't all supernatural creatures. I mean, I love Johnny Depp. I absolutely love him, and he helped my book sales. But it, it, the the whole series of Pirates of the Caribbean has gone to a pretty ridiculous place. So that hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So this still it was pirates, and it was it's an adolescent fantasy. And you could argue that I really have never grown up that much. And and my wife says that, you know, my first book was 99% sex. My second book was 50% sex. My third book was 20% sex. I mean, I've been trying to sort of tamp it down a little bit. Maybe age has helped with that. But um, uh, the the pirates, I, I just stumbled onto a story and it happened to be pirates. I got so incredibly lucky. When I first started researching it, it was just Captain Kidd who was, I knew that he had been, you know, labeled one of the most notorious pirates of all time. And it turned out that he was a, a privateer operating out, of, operating out of New York who got the job to chase pirates, to, to attack pirates and bring back the wealth of the Indies to these four super powerful backers in London. And his career intersected with a guy named Robert Culliford. And, and it turned out that I had I just couldn't have asked for a better plot. The two men had sailed together earlier in their career and Kidd goes on to be a pirate hunter and Culliford goes on to be the most notorious pirate of his age. 
And the two of them literally have a confrontation off the island of Madagascar where a kid orders his men to attack. And I'm not going to tell you what happens because I hope people will read the book. But it, it just, I couldn't have asked for and, and then Colorford winds up testifying against Kidd. And, and it's just, I got so lucky. And, and it really wasn't about pirates. It was about having a great story to work with. And it um, took a long time to figure out the yeah. story, though. But Sure. So you had to be pretty flexible. You go in there thinking that Captain Kidd is a pirate. You, have, you find out that you've, everything you know is wrong. Everything wrong. And that's one of the great lessons, I think, to the young writer is to not go in with intent, is to go in with the curious. And if anybody goes in with wonder and curiosity, it's you, Richard. And so how do you maintain that? I'd love to share the method, to tell you the truth, because it's taken a long time. I'd love to hear it. What is it? I went in on that book, and I just did research after... I literally spent a year piling up... um, you know, uh, photocopies and taking notes and reading books and putting post-its. And I had amassed two entire file drawers full of information and I couldn't see my story. I just knew that Mm. I could start with Captain Kidd was born like every biographer and I refused. I wanted a dramatic story. So I really was kind of despairing, to be honest. I thought I'm not cut out to be a writer. I think I'm going to have to do so, or not this type of writer. And, And literally my joke to myself was, you're going to have to be a janitor in Phoenix. Like, if you do not pull off this book, your shame will be so great, with all due respect to janitors in Phoenix, you got to go to Phoenix and be a janitor. You just, you're, you're just, okay. you're, you're like, so anyhow, I, um, I was so distraught that I, just to do something, to feel like I was progressing, I took every scrap of information in those file drawers and turned them into a massive chronology, a huge timeline, literally that said like August 17th, 1691, August 23rd, and every shard, every scrap of information that I found that that could be identified by date, I put in, and then I put bracketed the source so that I'd know how to get to it really quickly if I needed it. And suddenly, Mm -hmm. I had a 400-page single, not suddenly, (laughs) not suddenly at all, I had a (laughs) 400-page single-space timeline. And then I started (gasps) putting bold face on the more important events. And all of a sudden I realized, I really didn't even know Robert Culliford existed. I saw this man who had been on the first ship with Kid, who had been a wannabe pirate captain, and then who wound up so important towards the end. I started to see the way that I could make it a double weave. And I did, I did Culliford chapters and Kid chapters until they explode in various scenes towards the end. And I would never have seen it if I hadn't done that massive chronology, which I recommend to anyone who writes nonfiction narrative, do the big chronology, reread it, put some bolds in there, and then look for a plot. Don't fudge a single detail, but look for a plot. Oh, that's gorgeous. And what an extraordinary gift to give to people. I just love that. So that's the, not the, I don't want to just reduce it to being practical, but that is very practical to make yourself a timeline. Yeah, research a ton first. You don't want to make that time, that timeline, you know, you yeah, you can make it as you go along, but You've got to do a ton of research. You have to, you know, otherwise it's just going to be thin and it'll probably be resemble other people. And I also recommend, this is so time consuming, but only primary source material if possible. Please don't use, the, right. the, the, the w- Wikipedia can be fine at times, but the, the same mistakes are repeated over and over. For instance, I corrected Captain Kidd's birth date. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal, but mm-hmm. it changed the arc of my story a little bit because 1645 makes him nine years older by having him, you know, at, at 46 is a different age to a lot of males than 56, you know, or 55. Right. And, uh, you Absolutely. know, it just, just things like that. It's just, you know, go to the primary sources. 
Well, that's accuracy in all things. And, I, and I'm going to ask you about the juice behind that in a minute in, in, the, in the terms of the writing. But let's just stick with the research then for a second, because you live in Manhattan and a city of great libraries and research portals. The New York City public library system alone is a wonder and a gift beyond rubies. I live in upstate New York, home to the New York State Archives, where every imaginable map and photo is available. There's a, they've got a collection there of suitcases, for instance, huh. from women who were committed, huh. committed, women who were committed to institutions by their oh. families for bad behavior and uh, housed for the rest of their bad. lives. Yeah. All their all their suitcases are there, right? So wow. wondrous items awaiting researchers. So what less than obvious places could you just name off the top of your head to go to do research that you can recommend? There are stories waiting for every nonfiction writer in these places. I always send people to the archives and say, do you know what the Dutch history they have there is that no one's ever written about? What about you? Like, What places would you recommend sending young writers to go find some stories? I'd like to say that it was as important as it used to be, but it, it is unbelievable now what Google Books and Google Scholar have done. I know maybe that's not the answer you especially wanted, but but it, it I find it almost depressing. I used to have to work so hard and go to go to the Lilly Library at Indiana University, go to you know all these very strange places mm-hmm. to get a scrap of information. And wherever the budgets allow, like John Jay has put all these criminal trials from from the late 1800s. Um, I think 170 of them now, if you know where to look inside the John Jay archives online, 170 of the 400 are now the full trial transcript is available. Uh, it used the pirate to be, trials, you mean? No, no, the, of um, criminal trials, oh. um, NYPD, you know, uh, I'm just saying. Oh, that, NYPD trials, yeah, I just see. Saying, oh, more great. Recent, 1890s, for instance, at John Jay online, which isn't, it doesn't Amazing. pop up the first New York, New York City trial transcripts, I think it's called. And then, mm-hmm. you know, my, the things that I used, my breakthrough happened actually at the public record office um, in London, which they also call the National Archives there. And um, I was looking at, uh, oh God, just pulling all these different files from my time period, just almost on a wild goose chase. And I stumbled on a diary of a man who had been held prisoner on Captain Culliford's ship for a year. Oh. I, I mean, you talk about, I changed the whole book. I had, I now knew exactly That's where he had fabulous. sailed. And, and he once took um, China and put it, put it in a cannon to try and shred the sails of a ship he was attacking. Just <laughs> blast them with <laughs> plates and dishes and cups. I mean, you can't make that stuff up. He had a doctor named John Death. He had, you know, I mean, just, uh. just great stuff. So, um, but back to your question, I, yes, the municipal ar- archives in New York are amazing and they're not the easiest place to use sometimes, which I think is, I like things being a little hard. I mean, but on the other hand, now, if you know how to frame your search and you put quotation marks around it and you go into the more obscure areas, you can get so many, like I just used a magazine uh, the other day from 1842, cause I'm researching this, uh, possible next book idea. I just got it immediately. That's that's a seven-page article on a mutiny. That I, I was crazy. So anyhow. Well, I defend the internet to people all the time in in terms of that. I mean, I, I for years I was a Charles Darwin fanatic, and you had to go all the way to England. You had to make an appointment six months in advance if you wanted to read any of the twenty thousand letters that he received from people all over the world as he was thinking about the book right. that would eventually change the world on Origin of Species. Now. You can see them in their original online right now. That's astonishing. 
Mark Twain's yes. almost his complete letters, close to it, are available through the Mark Twain papers, which I got really lucky. Thank God they hadn't their budget hadn't quite reached the notebooks of eighteen. I just did a Twain book, and um, the notebooks of eighteen ninety three forward tonight to his death in nineteen ten haven't been um, put online, haven't been um, transcribed. You know, um, so that was uh, such a blessing for me. So in a way, I'm in competition with the internet because it makes it so easy that a lot of people do, to be honest, fairly mediocre books on great subjects. And it, that's a little depressing, but uh, that's fair. Right. It's, you know, the world's, it's, it's wide fair. open. It's fair. It's fair. Well, we'll get to the Twain book in a minute, but I wanted to ask you that question about the juice, about the the writing. Um, it's it's. I used to work at the New York Times. We used to pretty much divide the room into those people who were good reporters and those people who were good writers. And there weren't that many of people who were both. And it was really a distinction. Um, and you do both really, really well. I read in an interview with you from your early days that in a in a list of books you would include if you worked in a bookstore, that you would include early Truman Capote. And that just delighted me because hmm. only yesterday I used those very words in a recommendation to a writing student of mine. So reading early and reading the work of people whose work can inspire you. Can you talk to me a little bit? Of, do you remember why you listed early Capote, what it was about his work that so inspired you? Well, I th I thought he was just so incredibly visual. Um, the I remember mm. the dogs bark, and um, you know I, I can't the, the pie on the windowsill. The uh, you know, and then of course in Cold Blood, which is now we all sort of realize is slightly fictionalized. But God, I just I, I actually find myself reading much more fiction than I do nonfiction because nonfiction me often too. makes makes me so angry that it's so flat, and people are so proud that they found all these obscure details and they can't resist putting them in. Well, that doesn't make for a good story. Or they just write it from birth to death with no sense of trying to, to find more of a storyline. I mean, the, the good writers obviously don't do that, but, but I find picking up so many nonfiction books that I'll, all I do is skim them for their sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I find it, reading fiction, I'm always telling people to read fiction when they write memoir. Absolutely. So, and, and I don't know where you I come agree down with you on, on that, early but, Capote. But, uh, you know, single source, you know, look, you know much more about memoir than I do, but the idea of a single source, it shouldn't be single source, put it that way, because we all, <laughs> mm -hmm. I know I do, we sort of blend and fudge, but that's what's interesting. You know, there is no truth. There's just well-sourced, <laughs> you know, it's just there we your go. source. There you go. I, my own sister tells me things all the time. She says, that never happened. And I always say, you're right, Margaret, that's not the way it happened to you. That's the way it happened to me. But that admits that single source. It's just absolutely positively single sourced. It's perception. So getting right. back to your, yeah, it is perception. Right. It is absolutely perception. And getting back to your your the wonderful train of your books, we have there this decision you made to drill into somebody that we know a lot about, Teddy Roosevelt. And was, you're yeah. you you didn't drill you drilled into a particularly curious aspect of him, which I found fascinating. The title is Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's Quest to Clean Up Sin Loving New York. And while your inclination toward vice kind of answers the question of why and what interested you in that. But what was it that you had heard or read about Roosevelt that set you on that particular course? Well, I have to tell you, the, you brought up the pirate issue before, like the, that it would have been an obvious career path to have just written 10 pirate books. Um, I actually, after the, the more of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies came out, and I got, I got teased, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of my books. I will not trade a single 
word in there. But there was a, definitely a certain, there's no pirate scholarship. Let's put it that way. There's a certain lack of respect. There's a certain <laughs> like, you get a lot of ARGs. You have to be ready to tolerate ARGs if you write about pirates. And, and it, at some point, yeah. man, you know, I mean, I spent four years of my life writing Pirate Hunter and I am so incredibly proud of it. And then, you know, somebody meets me at a party. Someone else says, oh, we wrote Pirate Hunter. And the next person always says ARG. <laughs> it's just, oh, are they covering eye I'm with an sorry. eye patch? Are they? It's okay. Right. It's tough. But so part of it was I <laughs> wanted to try getting a little bit away from pirates, you know. Um, and I always knew that Roosevelt had been police commissioner. I knew the one book on it was pretty mediocre, in my opinion. And uh, I was mm-hmm. absolutely thrilled to get to do. And then once I started it, as you said to your writers, you have to be open-minded. I didn't know that it would turn out to be a battle over sort of the the purity versus vice in New York City. And it I didn't have to force it into that template. That's what happened. I mean, Roosevelt was so mm. for purity and this guy, Big Bill Devery, the police chief was just a Tammany get along, Demstos, D's, look the other way, let them gamble, let them go to prostitutes guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way I saw the book. So that's the way I wrote the book. And then we did tone down, we, we buffed up Roosevelt and put Devery a little in the background. It, you know, if I had to do it over, I don't know. But anyhow, that's... That's how we handled it. And it was great to do a new time period. And that led to this Hollywood consulting, being a historical consultant for a major TV, you know, which was just a nice change of pace in life to be in a room with John Sayles and these other people as they try and write a script, you know. Um, so it And was, what's the script for? It was The Alienist. Um, the Caleb yes. Carr book was being adapted and mm-hmm. um, they wanted to find a historical consultant. And my island device was that exact time period. So I got hired by Paramount to be the historical consultant, which I had never done anything like that before. So it's really interesting. You're the historical consultant is certainly the low man in the room. Let me tell you, <laughs> I had no wow. idea. Well, I think of you as vice <laughs> consultant, Richard, really. So I, was, I think of I, that as the top dog. <laughs> well, I actually suggest, I'm very proud to say, and I think I'm allowed to say this. Um, so one, you know, you do get a handful of things that actually make it on screen. And one of the things that mm-hmm. I actually got in was the location of the uh, public baths for the predator to be searching for a victim. And um, ah. and then the murder scene there with a blood, sli- slip, blood slick floor. And I was really proud, because I thought, because where would uh, a man obsessed with, with young teenage boys or prepubescent, where, you know, pubescent boys, where would he right. go? Well, the, I found out, to talk right. about historical details, that young men 16 and under were allowed to swim naked in the public pools and public baths of New York City. I mean, what a detail oh for someone who's a predator. And that's what an authentic detail. authentic detail, and it really worked into the story. So anyhow. Oh. Well, detail is certainly at the heart of everything that you write. And I was just delighted when I read for your 2017 book, Chasing the Last Laugh, How Mark Twain Escaped Debt and Disgrace with a round-the-world comedy tour, that you had been given access to a trove of unpublished notebooks and materials. So is that the is that the big gift? Is that the best thing that happens in this kind of research? When somebody says, we trust your work so much so that we want to give you access to this stuff? Or am I overblowing that? I mean, is it, no, it feels no. like it would be... No, you're it not. It feels like it would be like the it. ultimate crown. You know, like we think you're so good, we're gonna let you look at this. Oh my God, that's fabulous. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. The biggest break I got was that they hadn't gotten they hadn't gotten to putting those all into book form. They hadn't gotten them online yet. Um, I think they would have 
I, I don't want to overblow it. I think they would have said yes to other people, but it is so unbelievably wonderful in this day and age of the internet, serving mm -hmm. up everything imaginable to have something that's not online. And that was, Mark Twain wrote lines that didn't make it into some of his books. Like he, he wrote these, um, you know, aphorisms that he said, like, um, <laughs> if, if Jesus came back today, one thing he would not be is a Christian. I mean, oh my. you know, what wow. a damning powerful line wow. that he, he thought he couldn't publish, you know? So yeah. there were, uh, yeah. And he said, debt yeah. makes a coward of a man. And it was too close to home mm. because he was going through so much debt and he knew it was true about himself. He was doing things he would preferred not to have done career-wise perhaps. And I mean, just, just to get to read those and share them with people is just, it's great. Well, you get a glimpse that other people haven't gotten. I remember years ago, I got I was writing a book on red hair, and I got a, I called the Amherst College Library because I heard they had a lock of Emily Dickinson's hair, and I'd heard that it was bright red, and for me that changed everything. You know, yeah. we think of Emily as a sort of washed out, pale person in a white dress who never left home. Well. I called up the library. They they said, no one ever asks to see huh. this lock of hair. Please come over. And they got it out just for me. And it is the brightest damn lock of red hair you ever did see. And That's I awesome. was thrilled and changed by it. But I also was very humbled and delighted that they got it out for me. That was kind of them. But I love this. And I love those moments as a writer when somebody says yes, because we know that you're going to do the right thing with this. So I was once at the library, I think it was in uh, Indiana University, and I was looking at some randomly at some Victor Hugo papers trying to find, I think for my original sex book, but they, they've accidentally had a, a, one of his cards. It said Victor Hugo, just plain, you know, print, printed script on one side. Uh, and then on the other side, yeah. it said in handwritten, Bouvant Champagne. And I thought he just <laughs> slipped this to some beautiful woman or he slipped it to a friend. But I mean, in his own handwriting, let's just drink some champagne, bouillon champagne. So that was a moment where Victor Hugo came alive. It was so, so fun. People come alive in the stuff that they didn't publish, maybe more so than in the stuff that they did. Sometimes. And again, I had never seen this lock of, of hair. You know, you've never yeah. seen that, that expression. Yeah. Well, you've published a really impressive number of books. You've been a bestseller. You've published with some of the best houses there are. But choosing a book to which to dedicate, as you said before, four years, is it still feels to a lot of young writers like something of a mystical process, knowing what the public might like to read three years from now or four years from now or six years from now, and then knuckling down to do all that research. So some writers seem to have their fingers on the pulse, like they act like those dogs who can predict earthquakes. And I always am interested to know from writers, do you think it's a mystical experience or are you just writing the book you want to read? That's a great question. I think earlier in my career, I completely wrote the book I wanted to read and now you get to a certain age and you think, well, I don't know how many more books I'm going to write. So maybe I should think a little bit about trying to reach the widest possible audience or maybe, you know, it's not like I desperately need the money, but you love to have the readers. You just want more readers. So it's such a good question. And frankly, I do, there are, there are some ideas that I do reject because I think, wow, that's going to sell 6,000 copies and I'm going to spend three years of my life. So let's not do that one. You know, and then and then you mm -hmm. can really get yourself into quicksand, you know, trying to I want looking for the right book idea. I want something where I get to travel. I want it to have movie potential. I want it to really be a subject I want to do. I want it to have <laughs> stuff that's not on Google. Um, I want it to have a little bit of a naughty side. I mean, it's just 
you know, so many trying to check all those boxes is crazy. Well, that's gorgeous. I want it a little bit on the naughty side. Yeah, that sounds like my friend Richard Sachs. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Richard. Thank hey, you thanks, so Mary. much. This was just an absolute joy. And that's Richard Zacks. His many books are available wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more in the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. Thank you.